you. I heard once that daylight saving started by a man who cut off a portion of his blanket and sewed it to the back end of his blanket, thinking that it was adding more length to it. Um, don't know whether that's true or not, but sometimes we wonder, what is the purpose of this? Um, you're all are on time, so you didn't have too much trouble adjusting to daylight savings. I guess we'll have to keep our eye on the door to see if anyone comes scrambling in at the last minute. But this morning, I want to talk to you about something of, of vital importance. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage here in 1 John chapter 2 and looking at verses 3 through 6. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, in a sermon that I've titled, Walking Obediently. Walking Obediently. We're going to be talking about something incredibly important. Now, what I'm not going to be talking about is the color of the carpet or how comfortable the seats are here in the sanctuary, or how well the technology in the service cooperates. Now, I've just said that everything's going to go haywire. I'm not going to talk about how many projects need to get done around this building, or even what the church sign looks like down by the road. As highly as we may value some of these things, none of them are truly important as we consider what we as believers are called to be doing. The truth is that if technology failed us, if the church sign down by the road collapsed, if the seats lost all of their cushions, if we went and just stripped them all out, if the building burned down, does our calling as Christians change? No. Do we need a church sign to be ministers of the gospel? No. Our mission is not to maintain all of these things or to be trying to, to make everything and trying to make everything look as nice as possible. Our mission is to use these things that God has given us and to walk in obedience to Him. Do we need comfy chairs to be able to fulfill God's purpose for us? Do we need a sound system? Do we need projectors? Do we need microphones to do all of this? No. Sometimes we can get so carried away with all of this stuff that we lose focus of what our true calling is. All of this stuff is going to fail. No matter what you think, it's all going to fail. Microphones are going to need to be replaced. Sound systems are going to need to be replaced. Projectors are going to need to be replaced. Signs are going to need to be replaced. The cushions on the seats, the chairs maybe entirely, will one day have to be replaced. All of these things are going to fail. They're going to need fixing. There are always going to be issues that need to be addressed. But none of these things should be affecting our focus of walking in obedience to Christ. We could have the most modern building with the most state-of-the-art sound system. We could have a church sign so bright, so illuminated that it could be seen from outer space. We could have massaging chairs in the sanctuary, but all of that wouldn't do us any good to keep us on track with where we need to be with Christ. Trying to live for Christ while constantly focusing on all of this stuff is like trying to drive your car while you have the parking brake on. You may spin the wheels, but you're not really going to go anywhere. Or you're going to just creep ahead at an inch pace, going little to nowhere. Walking with Christ insists that we're walking in obedience to his word. And the best way to do that without allowing all the stuff and the outside influences to slow us down is having Christ's assurance. Assurance is 
incredibly important because what assurance does in the life of a Christian is it settles our minds. It settles our thoughts. Assurance allows you to keep your focus on God even when you're not sure what God is presently doing in your life. Assurance is the ability to know that you're saved and to know that God forever keeps you that way. It is assurance that urges believers to be active in witnessing because Who better to witness for Christ than a person who knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is saved by the grace of God? Who better to share Christ with an unbeliever than a believer who knows that his salvation is real and fully believes that God can bring others the same peace and the same confidence that God has brought him? Think of all the salesmen that you've dealt with over the years whether it was buying a car or buying a cell phone or whatever it may have been, think of the individuals that you deal with, someone trying to sell you something. What kind of a salesman would they be if they didn't believe in what they were selling? What kind of a witness can you expect to be for Christ if you don't even have assurance of the salvation that he gives you? Every believer should be fully confident that he is saved and understand even what assurance means. Assurance means that every one of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, the future sins that you're yet to commit, all have been forgiven through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. They've all been taken care of. They've all been forgiven. Assurance means that the Holy Spirit has now come to live in your life the very moment that you believed on Jesus Christ, and he gives you Christ's peace, he gives you Christ's power, and he gives you Christ's purpose. Assurance means that when you die, or when the Lord returns, whichever one happened first, we will be in heaven with him forever. What kind of a Christian are we without assurance of our salvation. And assurance of our salvation comes through walking obediently to God. Even if you know that you're saved today, how confident are you in your salvation? Are you confident enough to tell someone else about how they can know that Jesus is the answer to their sin problem? The proper assurance leads us to be productive. It leads us to be an effective communicator of the gospel, an effective witness for Christ because we'll know how to put in words what Christ has personally done for us and how simple he's made salvation for us. Many Christians know they're saved, but they struggle to put into words what makes their salvation possible. Christ never intended for witnessing, soul-winning evangelism to be difficult. He never intended it to be something that we struggle with. He wanted it to be something so simple that anyone can do it. And that's why he's made the message of the gospel so easy. Believe on Jesus Christ Christ and thou shalt be saved. Don't jump through all these hoops and, and, and be a good person and over their lifetime have a whole body of work that amounts to being good enough. He says just believe on Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's so simple even a four year old can understand it. But as simple as it is to understand, not enough Christians are confident enough in the gospel message to go out and to share with others. Some Christians are led to doubt their salvation when they're questioned about it. And this leads them from being shy from ever sharing it. An English Puritan named Thomas Brooks, he described assurance this way. He says, it is a reflex act of a gracious soul, whereby he clearly and evidently sees himself in a gracious, blessed, and happy state. It is a sensible feeling 
and an experimental discerning of a man's being in a state of grace. Assurance is a believer's ark where he sits, Noah-like, quiet and still in the midst of all distractions and destructions, commotions and confusions. Assurance gives us the confidence we need to be confident, to be steadfast in any and every situation, like the hymn which we'll close our service with. Assurance leads believers to be able to eternally rejoice because they know that Jesus is theirs. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I love the way that song explains it because it accurately describes what assurance of salvation offers. Having assurance of salvation is like getting a taste of heaven right now. A foretaste, it says, of glory divine. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want a foretaste of glory divine? With all the challenges and the difficulties that we face in this life, a foretaste of heaven would bring us so much relief and comfort and peace. It would motivate us to be more eager in witnessing and sharing the gospel. It would motivate us to be more devoted to Christ if we got a taste of what eternity is going to be like in his presence. It would motivate us to increase in the knowledge of God, to be in the word more regularly and to be in prayer more regularly. Assurance of our salvation would do so much good for us. Now, some of us may not struggle with the truth that, that, that we're saved, but we may struggle with understanding the fullness of what assurance really is. Some Christians are struggling with this without realizing they're struggling with this. And several areas of their lives become affected as a result. Now, the key to unlocking the full picture of assurance is found through walking in obedience. So let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about walking obediently. Your Bibles are open to 1 John chapter 2. Follow along. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. Notice what the Bible says here. And if you read the book of 1 John, just five chapters, you see the word no appear so many times because this is the crux of this little book. Verses 3 to 6, the Bible says, And hereby we do know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. So I want you to notice first the struggle, the struggle. No one is going to dispute the fact that every single Christian wants assurance of their salvation. No one would sign on to receiving a salvation that they couldn't be assured of. That would be a most miserable way to live if we weren't ever sure that we're truly saved. You'd be questioning, you'd be doubting everything about your life, whether you truly meant what you said when you prayed when you were four or five or a teenager, whatever it was, when you asked Jesus to forgive you and to save you. Whether you were even old enough, you'd be questioning to understand the full message of the gospel. You'll be questioning whether your faith is enough, whether your salvation could be as simple as what God says it needs to be. The questions are endless that we could ask ourselves if we are lacking assurance of our salvation. If it were possible, we would be forced to get saved every single day. 
if we're struggling with assurance of salvation. Or at least every time the doubts begin to creep into our minds, we think we need to get saved over and over, and over again because we're unsure, unsure as to whether or not we really meant it or whether it was real back when we first did it. This is no way to live your life. This is no way to live your life, especially if you're saved, which is why every Christian wants assurance of their salvation. But as much as everyone wants it, not everyone fully embraces it. Most Christians grow, go through seasons of life where they are, are living with fears and they're living with hopes. Some go to the extreme of thinking that they're actually teetering back and forth between heaven and hell. Some days they're confident that they're saved, and other days they fear as if their salvation was all a sham, that it was never real, it was never genuine. And this often happens when we view assurance as a privilege and not a right. God didn't save us for us to doubt His power and to doubt His work of salvation. He saved us and made it so that we can know with complete certainty that we are indeed saved and saved permanently. Amen. Assurance is a right for every believer. In Romans 8, 16, the Bible tells us, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are the children of God, and the Holy Spirit is a confirmation of that. Psalm 4, verse 3 tells us, it says, but know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. We've been set apart by God for God when we're saved. Assurance of salvation brings peace to troubled hearts. It settles questions when we have these doubts and, and causes the doubts to flee. It reminds us that no matter the circumstances that we're dealing with, no matter how many questions may be swirling through our minds, we're indeed a child of God and the Holy Spirit living within us is the confirmation of that truth. Assurance is not something that God only makes available to a special group of believers. It is a right for every single believer, four years old, up to 94, 104, 124, however long you live, as a child of God, you're a child of God. Therefore, to not have assurance, it produces uncertainty and fear that brings feelings of misery and despair. Unlike your salvation, which can never be lost, assurance of salvation can be forfeited. No one forfeits assurance willingly, but it happens through negligence. As much as assurance is part of redemption and it is vital for believers to uh, have joy and to have comfort here in this life, you're only going to have it so long as you pursue it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse number 10, the Bible says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Give diligence. Strive for it. Make it real in your life. We're told also in Hebrews 10, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Assurance doesn't come to those who do nothing. But it comes to those who are actively seeking after God's truth and this promise. Listen to what it says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 through 8. The Bible says, And beside this, giving all diligence, 
Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to be working at it daily and adding to our faith and increasing in the knowledge of God. Assurance of salvation doesn't come naturally. We need to understand more of God to understand more of the salvation that he has offered us. It's when we're not seeking God out when we struggle with assurance. We allow doubts to creep into our minds and we're led down a path that completely undermines the teachings of God's word to bring us to a conclusion that is contrary to what God has promised. And this becomes a big issue because believers don't just struggle with assurance. Some are taught that they can never have assurance of their salvation. Some churches are adamant to deny the possibility of assurance of salvation. This perspective stems from the Catholic heresy that justification is an effort between God and sinners, a combined effort. Salvation comes from something that God does and a little bit of what we do, and when you put it together, then we can have that full salvation. This teaches that God always does his part, but the sinner might not do his part, and therefore no one can truly be assured of his salvation. In 1563, the Council of Trent stated, it says, any believer's assurance of the pardon of his sins is a vain and ungodly confidence. Can you believe that? Any believer's assurance of the pardon of his sins is a vain and ungodly confidence. In other words, it is an empty thought, an empty idea to ever think that you can indeed know for sure that you've been pardoned and your sins have been forgiven. Imagine living that way. A person can never be fully assured that his salvation is real until he's in heaven. How would you live here on earth if you're not knowing for sure that you're going to be in heaven one day? Would you have peace in your heart? No. You'd be a miserable wretch if you're wondering every single day, are you going to be in heaven? Not knowing that you're saved until you're there. That is a terrible way to live your life. With no assurance and no certainty, no confidence, no peace, you will be a miserable wretch wondering every single moment if you're ever going to be there. And this is why evangelism and soul winning are so important. Because there are false ideas being propagated and declared out in the world which we need to correct. We need to spread the good news of the one true gospel that Jesus Christ brings eternal salvation to all who believe on him and then makes it possible for all to have assurance of that salvation, to rest in those promises, to be confident and steadfast in what he's done, that it will never fail and it will ultimately lead us to the promised home of heaven. God wants us to live with joy today, not the hope that one day we're going to have joy in heaven, but to have it now. To get the foretaste of glory divine here on earth, what we'll experience for all eternity in heaven. And he makes it possible for all to have that. In Romans chapter 8 and verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. 
The moment God saves us, we become his child. And God's way of making us his child is by giving us the Holy Spirit. The closer we're growing in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, the more assurance that he gives us, the more we are settled in our hearts and minds that his promises are real. When a person is truly saved, there will be evidence, there will be signs of the Holy Spirit working in his life, both in his attitude and in his behavior. It'll be clear. And the more we're diligently walking obediently to God's word, the more our assurance in him and his word will be solidified. But that's the struggle. The struggle is to get to that point. Now look at, secondly, the test. The test. Look at verse 3 here in, in 1 John chapter 2. It says, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. This is how we have assurance. This is the test of our assurance. There are certain ways of verifying that we are the children of God and have a genuine relationship with him. In other words, if you ever struggle with the assurance of your salvation, there are ways to test it to make sure it is real, it is real and genuine. Because there's a possibility that the reason you're lacking assurance is because you're not saved at all. Now, I love the fact that the wording here in verse 3 is so straightforward. It doesn't say, and hereby we think, or hereby we feel pretty good about it, or hereby we wish. But notice again, it says, and hereby we do know that we know him. You don't have to wonder. And isn't that what gives you assurance in the first place? Not having to wonder, not having to question, not needing the evidence, but knowing very simply, assurance comes from believing and obeying God's word. When you're not reading God's word, when you're not obeying what you're reading, you're going to struggle with assurance, and you should. You should struggle with assurance. How would you ever expect to have confidence in something that you're not invested in? But those who are obedient to his commandments, the Bible says, they will have the full assurance. They will know that they know they're in him. What the Bible is telling us here is that the external obedience provides all the evidence we need for whether or not there is an internal reality, salvation through Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul was writing to, to Titus, he warned him about those who think they are saved but are actually leading people astray and how to distinguish between false knowledge and true knowledge. Listen to what he said. He said, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. The same truth is established in 2 Timothy 3, verses 5 and 7, where Paul says, having a form of godliness, these people, he says, are denying the power thereof from such turn away because they are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Those who truly know God, those who belong to him, will pursue holy lives consistent with the new nature that God has given to them. When God saves us, our desires change. Our outlook on life changes. And there is a, a visible change that takes place. Everything might not change overnight. God doesn't just flip a switch and we become completely different individuals on the outside. We're changed immediately on the inside. God gives us spiritual life that is there permanently. But everything on the outside doesn't just change overnight. 
The Holy Spirit who comes and takes up residence within us the very moment we're saved, he begins the process of sanctification and he is progressively changing us day after day to the point that the things in our old life stay in that old life and we embrace our new life in Christ. There is a desire within believers to please God because of who God is and what he has done for us. We recognize that it is only by the grace of God that we were saved in the first place and we see that his ways are better than our ways and anything we could have ever done on our own. And therefore, we long to do things the way God wants us to do things. We long to think as he thinks. We long to approach life from his perspective. Again, everything's not going to change overnight. You're not going to get saved and then wake up a perfectly good person. But the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of God to us, showing us that God's way is the way of success here in this life as we have the promise of everlasting joys in the next life. And this is why those who are walking obediently to God's word have that assurance now. Because they see how God delivers. They see how God brings success in this life in any and all circumstances. But the key is obedience. He says again in verse number three, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Keeping his commandments insists that you know his commandments, which means that you're in the word of God and you're increasing in the knowledge of God and then the act of obedience follows. Assurance comes through knowing God and through obeying what God has given through his word. Claims mean nothing. You can claim what you want until you're blue in the face, but if it's not backed up by obedience, it means nothing. The nation of Israel found this out firsthand as they claimed to know everything about God but demonstrated the emptiness of their claims through their continual disobedience. It should be noted that obedience that we should demonstrate is not a, a legalistic obedience where we're doing as we're told only because we have to out of duty and of obligation but it should be a willing and a gracious obedience that flows from a desire to please God. We're still going to struggle with sin, but the desire to live in obedience to God will always bring us back to Him. Keeping His commandments stresses this idea of being watchful, of being on guard, putting in safeguards to ensure that you're steering as far away from sin as possible and remaining in the path that God wants you to follow, which is keeping His commandments. Some Christians settle, though, for a marginal standard of righteousness, while others set their sights on something so much greater. When God saves you, he makes it possible for you to live a better life here on earth, not to wait until you get to heaven to live that better life, but to experience better life here and now. Amen. However, many Christians disregard the better life now. And as a result, their journey through this life, while they're marching on their way to heaven, ends up being discouraging. It becomes worrisome. There are ups and downs, so many. And their life is just one despair after the next. God doesn't save you just so you can hang your head and drag your feet through this life until you finally get to where you have the opportunity to be happy and content in heaven. God offers a better life now, but it doesn't come by default. You don't just get that better life because you're saved. You're eternally saved forever, and you have a future home of a better life and a promise of a better life in heaven. But God offers a better life now. He offers it to those that are obedient. 
And before you think that God is some cosmic killjoy that only wants you to do things his way and won't let you do anything fun, think again. What is it in your life that you have done for yourself that has ever proven to be successful in your own strength? Has there been anything that you can look back on your life and see that it was all you that did it and think, you know what? I think I can manage things on my own. Just look at the body of work. The body of work that I'm leaving in my wake is a path of destruction. It is one failure after the next. At no point have I looked back at my life and thought, you know what? I've done pretty good for myself. I'm, I'm, I was able to accomplish all this on my own effort. So why would I need God? Unfortunately, that's the mindset of many where they automatically attribute all the past success to themselves and to their own skill and to their own intellect and to their own power and strength when it was God who allowed any victory and any success in the first place. Everything we've done on our own and in our own strength has failed and not just failed, but failed miserably. If it hadn't, then there'd be a way for us to earn our way into heaven, which we can't. God is trying to show us just how much we need him. So when God says, do it my way, he's not saying you can't have any fun doing things your way. He's saying you've tried it your way and you failed time and time again. How about trying the path of success and doing things the way that you should be doing things, which is going to bring the ultimate prosperity that you've been wanting all this time. Why not do things the way they should be done? God's not trying to make our lives miserable. He's trying to show us how to actually have true success. What was so good about your life that you didn't need God's help? Our pride tells us that we're good enough, that we're smart enough, that we're strong enough. But when we get to the end of our pride and realize that the best of us falls so short of attaining to what we're hoping to attain, we realize we need God. No one who has come to God has ever been disappointed by how God provided and how God proved himself worthy and sufficient. Amen. We find God to be more than enough for everything we ever need. Therefore, what sense does it make to accept God's salvation and then try to return to our old way of living, which got us nowhere, and abandon God's way of living, which has offered us everything? Stick with what works. God's way of prosperity and success has proven to work time and time again. Why abandon that for a lesser method that has proven to be unsuccessful? It doesn't matter what the flesh promises. It can never deliver on those promises. It never has. You can have all the money in the world, but money doesn't buy happiness. You can have the dream job, but still feel completely empty inside. When you're not walking in obedience to God, it doesn't matter what you have in life. You'll be struggling every step of the way as long as you continue living for yourself. God has given us the pathway to success, and it's right here in his word. Hereby, we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. That's the pathway to success. It's here in the Bible. God knows that even at our best, our obedience is going to be touch and go. We may go through seasons where we're demonstrating a sincere love through faithful obedience and devotion to Him, but then there'll come some moments where we give into the flesh and we'll fall off course for a while. In Proverbs 20 and verse number 9, the Bible states, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. None of us can say that. 
None of us can stand before God and say, God, I've got it handled. I can do what you can do. I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. None of us can stand and honestly declare that to be true. Because every single one of us continue to sin even after we're saved. The encouraging part is that God accepts the believer's loving and sincere obedience. Even if it is imperfect, he forgives our disobedience. When we're walking in obedience, by God's grace, we display a consistent and heartfelt devotion to the mind of Christ. In Psalm 1, which we read earlier, verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Blessed is the man, he says, that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. When we're walking in obedience, God will help us to see the mind of Christ and to show us where we need to be going. When there is a, a willingness for us to live according to his word, it is a reliable indicator to everyone else that we've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse number 21 in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. There are going to be a lot of people who think that they're saved, who think that they should deserve to be in heaven, but Christ tells us that not everyone who makes the claim is going to be there. You know, there are statistics that show that 80% of America claim to be born-again Christians. 80%, that's a huge number. 80% would mean that no churches would ever be closing down, but we'd have to be building churches left and right. 80% means that not a single seat should be empty here in this church. I'd love for that to be true. I'm scared about what the real number is, though. But you know what it tells me? It tells me that we have job security as Christians because our mission never changes. Whether 80% of America is saved, that still leaves 20% that still need to hear the gospel. But I honestly believe that the number is far less than the 80%. 8% may be modest which lets us know that there is always work to be done and there's more people that need to hear the word now more than ever. Let's make it so that those that appear before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, that they shall indeed enter the kingdom of heaven and not just think that they will. Walking in obedience is the test that separates those who claim to be saved and those that are truly saved. God-honoring obedience stems from a heart that truly loves God. We read a few chapters later in 1 John chapter 5 and verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. God hasn't made it difficult for us to live the life of joy and peace here. His commandments, he says, are not grievous. He's not trying to make life difficult for us. He's trying to show us the pathway to success and lasting joys and pleasures here 
to get the foretaste of the glory divine that is awaiting every believer in heaven. Jesus instructed his disciples in John 14, 21. He said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And then also in John 15, verse number 10, he said again, If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The love of God is best demonstrated through obedience. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Notice third, the application. How do we apply this to ourselves? Look at verses 4 and 5. 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. I love that God doesn't take time beating around the bush. He calls it as it is. Say whatever you want, but if your actions don't back it up, it means nothing. We don't see enough of this type of language, which honestly exposes self-deception. We're too worried about offending people. So we beat around the bush instead of coming outright and saying what needs to be said. Think of how many people who believe they're fine and fail to realize their own spiritual blindness. People who think that they're saved but aren't saved at all because no one has called them out on it. They've been attending church and they've volunteered in church and they looked the part on the outside, but we see signs of no fruit and no evidence anywhere else. And because we're too shy to call people out, many people continue in this feeling of security when there should be none. Now, that's not to say that they're innocent, but if we're not doing our part to warn those who think they're saved about their claims not being substantiated by their obedience to God's word to keep his commandments, what does that say about us? I seem to remember certain verses that, uh, that addresses this. Maybe a memory verse for the month of March. James 4.17. I'm having some trouble having this verse come to mind. But I think it says something to the effect of, Therefore to him who knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. sin. To him it is sin. I'd rather be someone, I'd rather people be upset with me for me telling them the truth that they don't want to hear than people be pleased with me for them allowing them to continue to believe a lie. Share God's word. Tell others what they need to hear, not what they want to hear, and do so from a spirit of love. Regardless of people's claims, if they're not keeping God's commandments, they don't know God. What does it say in verse number four? He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. These aren't my words. The Bible says, if he claims it, but doesn't obey the word of God, what else do we have to go off of? He's a liar, the Bible says, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. Share God's word. It doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible. It doesn't matter how many years you've attended church. If you don't, do not love God and keep his commandments, you're not demonstrating that you know Christ. In James 2, 17 and in verse number 26 as well, 
It states, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Make no mistake about it. No one is saved by their works. But your works provide evidence of your faith. Those whose faith is genuine will have the works of obedience as the evidence. As verse 5 here states again in 1 John 2, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Genuine love for God is seen in obedience to him. And through that, the love of God, it says, is perfected in them who are walking obediently. Do you really love God? Do you really love God? If you do, it'll be evident. It'll be evident in how you live your life. It'll be evident in how you speak. It'll be evident in how you conduct yourself that you love God. If you're having to ask yourself that question over and over and over again, do I love God? Am I really saved? It's probably a good indicator that something is missing in your life. Genuine love is evident by time spent reading the Bible, by increasing the knowledge of God, by praying regularly, by fellowshipping with other believers, by serving Christ, by striving to walk in obedience to his word. Being a Christian means having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing him, loving him, and living in him. And last, point number four, look at the evidence. Verse number six, the evidence. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. The only one who can pass the test of obedience, who can have full assurance that we so desperately need is the one who is walking obediently to God's word. As believers, we get our spiritual life from Christ, so wouldn't it also make sense that we get our spiritual nourishment through Christ as well? Jesus declared in John 15 and verses 4 and 5, he said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Jesus is the one who gives us spiritual life, and he is the one who nurtures that spiritual life. But that spiritual life is only nurtured while we're abiding in him, while we're getting the nourishment from the vine, who is Jesus Christ, that our souls so desperately need. He's the only one that can provide that. Some of us, though, are more in love with our physical bodies than our eternal spirits, based on how much we make it a point to feed our bodies and to starve our spirits. By no means am I suggesting that we should all starve ourselves physically, but consider offering your spirit the same nourishment that you offer your body. Read the Bible. Memorize, the, memorize verses. Recite verses throughout the day. Apply them to your life. Pray regularly. Just do what you can to be consistent in your relationship with Christ. No one's going to walk perfectly. No one's going to obey in every little way. But that shouldn't stop us from keeping obedience to God as our ultimate goal as Christians. May it be evident that you know Christ. May it be evident that you love him. May your life serve as a shining example of the fact that Jesus Christ has saved you and your life is eternally better because of what he has done for you and who he is for you. 
May you never be robbed of the joy and the assurance of your salvation. And may you continue walking obediently in God's word, growing closer to him every day. He is the one who makes us perfect. He is the one in whom we are complete. And he alone is the hope and the assurance that we need in this life as we look forward to the next. Would you bow with me in prayer here this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have a reminder here of what our lives need to look like. Lord, certainly walking in obedience is easier said than done. Lord, for most of us, we know what the Bible says. We know what it requires of us. But Lord, we're often guilty of allowing the Christian life to be scaled down to just a few days a week. I pray, Lord, that we would do some serious self-examination. Lord, that we would call out our lack of effort for what it really is. Lord, that we would realize that obedience to you is not a suggestion, but Lord, it is the only pathway to victory and success here in this life. Our salvation, Lord, may not be called into question, may not be hanging in the balance. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to remain focused on you so that we do not allow the cares of this world, Lord, to question what we know to be true in your word or to even sway us from wandering from the path that you have set before us. Lord, it is in you alone that we have life. It is in you alone that our spiritual lives are then nourished. May it be you alone that our sights are focused on, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we